0: everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very pleased to have Rebecca Manley on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, To the Tashkent Station, Evacuation and Survival in the Soviet Union at War. Most people know that the Nazis attacked the Soviet Union in June of 1941, and they made remarkable progress in the first year of the war against the Soviet forces. What is less well-known, I think, is that the Soviets did an outstanding job of evacuating millions of Soviet citizens and a considerable amount of their industrial capacity to the east – This is a story that sometimes gets lost in all of the details, and they are fascinating details concerning Operation Barbarossa and then the subsequent Soviet-German conflict. But Rebecca Manley has unearthed a large number of really interesting documents concerning the evacuation and how it transpired. It was planned, but it was also chaotic. It was uh, enormous, but there are a lot of personal stories to be told, too. Also, interestingly, uh, we see the origins, perhaps, of official Soviet anti-Semitism in the evacuation program and the Russian response to it. So, all in all, this is a fascinating book. I really enjoyed talking to Rebecca today. And without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Marshall. How are you today?
1: I'm well, thank you. And
0: And I'm very well, thank you very much. I'm uh, here in Iowa, and it's beautiful in Iowa. We're having a very nice fall. The corn crop is in, for those of you who have been following the corn crop. I know it was late this year. It was wet fall, but we seem to have gotten a bumper corn crop in. And how is the corn crop in? um, in, in, You're in Ontario, aren't you?
1: I am in Ontario, and uh, the corn, at least our market, there's no more corn at the market. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We actually did have a very nice fall, but it's uh, it's rather... uh, grim today. It's overcast yeah, and gray and
0: yeah. sort of wet. I'm sorry we can't change that. We'll send you some corn from Iowa. <laughs> Actually, all the corn that we produce here is not for human consumption. It's all fed to animals.
2: right. I've read that.
0: Yeah. Uh, so I should tell our listeners that we have Rebecca Manley on the show today, and we will be talking about her terrific new book, To the Tashkent Station, Evacuation and Survival in the Soviet Union at War. This is a book that I was hoping would be written uh, decades and decades ago. Because it's an extraordinarily important topic. Uh, Most people don't know uh, when they think about World War II, especially Americans, I would say. I won't speak for Canadians, but um, first of all, they don't know the Soviet Union won it almost single-handedly. But they also don't know that the Soviet Union succeeded in uh, evacuating uh, millions and millions of of people. And among them, and this is something I think that uh, Rebecca deserves a certain amount of credit for, among them were uh, Jews who certainly would have been killed during the Holocaust uh, we don't usually uh, put um, uh, R- Russian and uh, Philo-Semitism in the same sentence. But in this instance, you know, uh, it, the, the story is really uh, one of uh, saving uh, a good portion of an entire people, and I was glad to see that and in the book. There were complications, of course. There always are. But I would recommend uh, the book to anyone who is interested in World War II because, again, this is a, this was the reality of the, the, um, the first uh, year of the war for um, – the Soviet Union, that was moving east. That's what most people were doing, moving east. So, Rebecca, congratulations on the book. Let me begin by asking you to say a few words about yourself.
1: Well, I, um, I grew up in Canada. I was born in the United States but uh, moved to Canada three months. I grew up in Canada. Um, my great-grandparents were from the Russian Empire. They were from Belarusia. And I was very fortunate uh, that they were alive well through my um, schooling years. Uh, so I had—I always had an interest in Russia. Uh, I enjoyed history from an early age. I liked writing, liked reading, uh, but didn't really decide to focus on history until I was making um, my decisions about what to do in university. And at that point, I had finished my high school um Education in Italy. I was at a very small international school near the border with what, at the beginning of my time there, was Yugoslavia. By the end, it had broken up, um, and it was Slovenia. And that summer, I was—I uh, had been admitted to University of Toronto. Was going to go there for university and had to decide what I was going to do. And was carrying around a course catalog with me. This was sort of pre-internet age um, and traveling in Eastern Europe, staying with friends I had made at this international school, and. Um, I had already become quite interested in history while studying in the school and done a project on women in the Russian Revolution and found it very interesting, Um, but I got, became kind of convinced that it would be interesting to study Russia and Eastern Europe while traveling in the region and and, uh, trying to learn a bit of the languages. Um, And so I decided to, you know, when I was registering, I'd study history and I'd study Russian. Um, So I made that decision before my first year of university, and once you start once you put in five hours a day um five hours rather of you know every morning you know eight or nine a m Russian language classes um for four years of university it's hard to steer off onto another track. <laughs> um, you already feel like you've made a very big commitment and i and I enjoyed history and was fortunate to have very good um history teachers at at the University of Toronto so i um I was pulled in, and of course, because of the family background, I was interested in Russia, and I was able to talk to my g- grandparents about it. Uh, at that stage, I was not at all interested in the war. It was not at all the war that drew, drew me to Russia. Um, but, uh, but again, the, the combination of family background and then having made the initial decision to invest uh, time and uh, energy into the language, it was, it was, uh, I was certainly not going to change fields uh, when I decided to keep going with history.
0: Mm-hmm. And then you go on to graduate school, and this is where you became interested in the Second World War.
1: Yeah, well, I, when I applied to graduate school, I had um, I was really interested. Uh, I was, as I said, not at all interested in the war. I think I had read nothing. I'd taken numerous courses on um, uh, in Soviet history as an undergraduate and soviet politics and i knew nothing about the war and i didn't grow up interested in military history at all so i didn't have the advantage of that background of uh... you know at least knowing something about the major battles um, i was interested by the time i went to graduate school I, I was interested in the 1920s and the 1930s i was interested in architecture um, domestic architecture i was, wanted to do a project on communal apartments and um... and housing design and i was uh, was very keen on this uh... project when i went off to berkeley and I think it was after my second or third year, uh, I can't recall now, of graduate school, we had the opportunity to go and do an exploratory research trip uh, in the archives that we plan to be working on uh, for our dissertation. So I went off to Moscow, and I was very uh, excited to start working in uh, the state archives and the party archives, and I started looking for things on housing. And uh, I found some extraordinarily boring accounts of you know, garbage disposal <laughs> um, from certain buildings that were certainly not the kind of materials I was interested in. Um, and just by chance, I had ordered some materials um, in the state archive. Uh, generally, my, I was focusing on the 1930s because that's all of the scholarship I had read was a, what dealt with the 1930s. Um, there was again, I had read almost nothing about the war, even not only as an undergraduate but as a graduate student. Uh, but there, I was looking through some materials and I saw some materials from the 1940s um, and started reading them, and they captivated me. Um, they were stories of people. They were focused on apartments, uh, but they were stories of people who had left their apartments during the war. And were desperately trying to reclaim them when they returned from uh, their evacuation in the rear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they, in the process of these letters that were meant to appeal uh, to authorities, they described the uh, the what they had been through um, in the course of the war. And all of a sudden, I found myself being pulled into these stories uh, and pulled into a period about which uh, I knew nothing despite the fact that I've been concentrating on Russian history since my first year of university. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I quickly tried to get myself to the Russian military museums and read the big, you know, tombs on the history of the war. Uh, Of course, my book is not a military history. It's it's much more of a kind of social, cultural, and political history. Um, But that was what really got me interested in the war were these – these stories of loss of home mm-hmm. homelessness. Mm-hmm.
0: That's a terrific story because the uh, documents lead the topic, as yeah. it should be. <laughs> I mean, uh, well, I don't know <laughs> if it always should be, but in this instance, I think it should be. I should also say that uh, I was one of those um, kids who did grow up reading about World War II all the time. And uh, by the time I got to college, where I was not going to study anything having to do with history, I could name every tank in World War II. Uh and uh, th- this is one of the reasons why I was really looking forward to this book because i 'm a little bit tired of reading about tanks and <laughs> all the tank all the good tank books have been written. I will tell the people out there that are interested in um, armored vehicles but there 's no book other than this one that I know about the evacuation so, so you really should go out and buy it. I get tank books I could talk about tank books all day long. But this one unique absolutely unique so um, so after you decided to, uh, to 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 work on this this topic and you wrote the book and so then Um, After you got the job at Queens, then you turned this into your uh, your your first monograph. Is that correct?
1: That's right. That's right.
0: That's right. So why don't we just begin by telling the story? I mean, I I think what most people know is that uh, the um, the Germans invaded the Soviet Union in uh, June 22nd, 1941, and things went extraordinarily badly. But there's actually sort of a backstory here that I was interested to see. Uh, The Bolsheviks were great planners, and they had a plan for evacuation. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, one of the interesting things, um, we do have this, and, and it's correct what you say, the Bolsheviks were, were great planners. They loved to plan and they loved to set up councils and commissions um, and to draft statutes and to comment on those statutes. And one of the interesting things about the evacuation is that um, everything I read about the evacuation when I first started researching the topic said that they, there were no plans. But they actually, despite this tradition of planning and this interest in planning, they had not drafted any plans. And this was the common uh, denominator to, of all scholarship I saw in the evacuation. Um, and what I found, actually rather late in my research, uh, was that in fact there was a long tradition of planning for evacuation beginning in the 1920s. Um, and the... Much of, the, much of the early planning for evacuation was based on the experience of the First World War. The First World War was really the, uh, the orientation point, uh, as it were, for Soviet authorities trying to prepare uh, for the eventuality of another war. And the Soviet authorities were quite convinced there would be another war at some point. This was part of their uh, – this was an ideological conviction as much as anything else. At some point, the capitalist countries and uh, the new socialist country would have to come into conflict. Um, and their planning for evacuation was uh, initially evacuation was the, what, what they called evacuation was something that was quite narrow, much narrower than what transpired in the Second World War. And this was simply the removal of important factories and important resources from areas that were threatened by the enemy. Um, so it was an, ec- an economic measure, a, 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 um, an attempt to, um, to secure resources. Uh, more than anything else. Uh, at the same time in the 1920s, as they were planning for evacuation and trying to designate which areas should be subject to evacuation and which kind of factories, uh, there was also something that was quite separate, which was planning for refugees. Of course, the First World War, and this is something that some listeners may not realize either, uh, but during the First World War in the in the Russian Empire, there were a tremendous number of people um, on the move. There were some three million uh people who were uprooted, either left on their own or were actually uprooted by the Russian army. And so the Bolsheviks were very aware that this was uh, a potential reality of war. And they were convinced that in the next war, um, there would be even more refugees than in the First World War. Um, why? Because this would be an ideological war. And so there would be a new category of refugees, political refugees. Uh, but... They were, they were in the 1920s. They were quite, you know, they, they were worried about refugees, and they knew it had created all sorts of problems—health problems, logistical problems—but um, they didn't really think they could do much about it. Uh, and what I found in my research, when I was looking through the plans and looking through the correspondence over the plans, was that there was a real sea change um, in planning in the 1930s, and this corresponded to some of the dramatic changes taking place in the Soviet Union in that period. And this was when Stalin. Um, uh, became the kind of undisputed leader of the country and inaugurated um, major changes in the end of the 1920s and early 1930s, the industrialization of the country, the rapid industrialization, collectivization, and the introduction of passports. Um, so whereas in the 1920s, planners had been kind of trying to think about how they would deal with this inevitable um, deluge of people that they expected to... to to occur in a future war in the 1930s, um, they started saying, well, you know, there shouldn't be any refugees in a future war. Mm. Um, we won't permit any refugees. And <laughs> something that had seemed rather outlandish, when it had been proposed in the 1920s, it seemed outlandish in the 1920s, suddenly became very, uh, sounded very reasonable, because this was a, a moment in which uh, the freedom to travel had been seriously restricted by the introduction of internal passports. Um, and uh, it was increasingly uh, there was an increasing tendency to view civilians in the same way that one might view uh, people inv- in the military mm-hmm. so to think about civilian mobilization uh, and so by the end of the 1930s or by the eve of the of the war, um, there was no longer any refugee planning because there weren't going to be any refugees in this war. instead, there would only be evacuees. Um, the significance is that the idea was that only people who had been designated by the state would be able to move, uh, would be transferred to the rear. And those that had not been designated uh, would be forced to stay and forced, uh, and so the, the, in some proposals, this actually involved you know, setting up battalions to, to um, uh, prevent people from fleeing to the rear. Mm-hmm. So uh, by the eve of the Second World War, there was a... Um, a very definite, there had been all sorts of discussions and plans involving the Committee of Defense and the the Commissary of the Ministry of Transportation and the Internal Affairs and all sorts of authorities involved in these debates um, was the result that there was a definite sense that uh, evacuations would be required in a future war. Um, There was a commitment or a notion that voluntary displacement, i.e. displacement that was not um, initiated by the state would not be permitted, uh, but there were very few concrete plans. And it was only it was a few weeks before the actual invasion of the Soviet Union um, that a statute, a draft statute, was drawn up stipulating who should be drawing up actual plans. Uh, but um, you know, I found this the statute, is I think yeah, it was dated something like three weeks before the invasion, nothing happened in those intervening weeks. Um, and hence the... The common perception that there was actually no planning because although there was uh, a lot of discussion about evacuation, there were very few concrete plans put into place
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so uh what happened after june twenty second nineteen forty one did uh people were not aware that there was a plan, so I guess they didn't follow any plan
1: well yeah the the i mean one of the things there were in the areas that were of course june twenty second nineteen forty one German forces invade all across the front lines. Um, as most people know, their their advance was extraordinarily rapid. Uh, so some places there wasn't even time to to even think about an evacuation. They were occupied before they even you know, knew it. Um, evacuation orders were issued in some regions without central authorization. In Latvia, for instance, there were evacuation orders um, issued, um, but uh, very quickly authorities started scrambling, contacting um, the central authorities in Moscow, uh, saying we need to do something. And Stalin at first was very, uh, skeptical. Um, in the first days of the war, Stalin was still planning a counteroffensive,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, that would launch Soviet troops onto enemy territory. This of course was wildly unrealistic given what was unfolding at the front. Uh, but the, he wasn't, he clearly wasn't fully grasping the reality of the situation and, mm-hmm. and the, um, uh, authorities in Belarus actually had to contact him and push him and say, "We need to." It's already this was you know two days after the invasion, it was already becoming late um, to evacuate the capital of Belarus. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in very short order, a commission was actually established, an evacuation council uh, in Moscow, and this council was supposed to take charge of the evacuation and ensure that evacuations happened uh, where they needed to, and that those sectors of the population and those uh, factories and other resources that needed to be evacuated would be evacuated
0: mm-hmm. and were they
1: it's a difficult it's a difficult question to answer i mean in in some ways on a global scale uh, if you look at the if you step back and look at the evacuation, what Soviet authorities achieved given the circumstances is quite remarkable. Um, they evacuated over a thousand kind of enterprises or factories. Um, many of these were up and running within, certainly within a year of evacuation. Um, they evacuated large numbers of resources, and large numbers of people were evacuated also. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is certainly uh, there's a there's a success story here, um, and a success story I think that's not uh, that's an important one in understanding how the Soviet Union actually survived the first two years of the war. Mm-hmm.
0: And to what extent, though, did and you mentioned this in the book. Um, to what extent did people uh, simply evacuate themselves, so to say?
1: Right. Well, this is, this is one of the interesting, one of the uh, curious terms that I came across in doing my research was spontaneous self-evacuation. This is <laughs> <the> term, uh, <laughs> very Soviet. <laughs>
0: As opposed to running away.
1: Exactly. In other words, running away. Um, And this was clearly a term that was used um, by authorities to describe uh, situations they were clearly displeased about. Um, Instead of being evacuated, people were spontaneously self-evacuating, which was, of course, not part of the plan, which was exactly what was – which was exactly the part of this whole phenomenon that that, – Planners in the 1930s had sought to stamp out. They didn't want any anything spontaneous happening. Everything was supposed to be state-directed.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, when we look at the total numbers, it's hard to know how many of the people who actually ended up in the interior were evacuated and how many spontaneously self-evacuated. Uh, but it's quite clear that many of the people, uh, there were, you know, I would say, the number of people who fled on their own were in the millions. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was in part a function of the restrictions that Soviet authorities put on who could be evacuated. Uh, And it was a part a function of the fact that evacuations uh, were often started so late that even those categories of the population that would have been subject to an official evacuation couldn't officially be evacuated, and so they ended up fleeing. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, This is the era of internal passports, and so uh, just I'm trying to imagine what would happen if – I, being a um, good citizen of Minsk, decide that uh, I'm just going to head to um, Moscow now, uh, even though I'm not put a piece in there, even though I don't have the right uh, internal passport. What happened to these people? Were they checked, or was there a general amnesty for people that weren't in the right place? How did the, right. the Soviets well, deal with
1: that? Yeah, it's an interesting question because people, of course, at this point, because of the passport regime, people did have to. Um, have, they didn't have to have authorization to travel. Martial law had been introduced also with the the onset of war, um, which imposed further restrictions on travel. People who tried to go to Moscow, of course, that that would have been a good destination. That was that would have been a smart place to try to get to. Um, that was the most difficult place to enter. Uh, re- restrictions on the capital, entrance into the capital, became very uh, uh, rigid, and there were detachments and KVD. Um, detachments that would actually stop people from going into the capital and of course they were interested they were concerned about spies they weren't really they didn't really care so much about the individual um, spontaneous self evacuee although that was another mouth to be fed and they were still trying to maintain um, the capital was a privileged place to reside in so some uh, lowly you know person from the Belarusian countryside would not be welcome in um, in moscow uh... but so it would be very difficult to get to moscow Uh, as somebody without the proper papers. Uh, But one of the things that's striking is that despite the whole system of controls that had been set up over the previous decade, controls on movement, um, there were, you know, it was warm. Perhaps this is not surprising because of the wartime conditions, but it was exceedingly easy if you managed to get onto a train. That was the difficulty. But if you managed to get onto a train, it was exceedingly easy to get basically wherever you wanted to go.
0: Mm-hmm. And why, why is that exactly? One thinks of the Soviet Union as a place that is, um, well, as they say about police states, they're very good at policing. Uh, right. So in, in this instance, how, how could you just get on a train during well, wartime and all this chaos?
1: Yeah, well, this is interesting. I mean, it was diffi- to get onto a train was difficult. Um, it was difficult because uh, almost depending on the circumstances, but almost invariably trains were leaving um, when bombs were already falling. Um, there were clearly... Um, you know, places, places were being reserved for the elites, um, as defined by Soviet authorities. Um, so getting a seat on a train might be difficult, but if once you were on, or if you managed to get on somewhere, um, you could bribery was very common. Um, so if you were checked and your papers weren't in order, it was very easy to bribe authorities. Um, the resources of the state were also stretched to the absolute maximum during the war. Uh, you know it 's clear even from studies of the nineteen thirties uh even from studies of the terror from the you know late nineteen thirties that somebody who was targeted if they if they simply wandered off into the countryside, they might avoid um arrest mm-hmm. most people weren 't willing to simply leave their homes and wander off into the countryside um but you could avoid arrest that way that the reach of the state um although uh you know although real certainly had uh,
2: serious limits mm-hmm.
1: um, and we see that very clearly, especially during the war, uh, when resources were stretched uh, again to their to, to their limits
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, and
1: so many people who were who would previously have been doing this kind of work had been conscripted into the army mm-hmm. um, and just a number of people, so often you know trains would be um, station masters would have all of these people arrive. They weren't supposed to send them on, uh, but stations were getting you know, clogged. You had to send people somewhere,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, so people just get shunted on to the next to the next spot.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, I was going to ask about that. So, say for instance, I do make it from Minsk uh, to Moscow with my uh, meager possessions. Uh, I don't. I have my internal passport, but I'm not registered in Moscow. And I, what do I do then? Do I camp out at the um, train station. Where do I live?
1: Um, you probably would camp out at the train station. Being in Moscow without um, official papers was would be very difficult, especially during the war. Ah, uh, you wouldn't have access to rations. Um, without access to rations, you'd be forced to sell your meager position, uh, possessions, um, which might get you food for you know a, a short while, but not for long. Um, so you would probably be ending up at the station. And what police did is they would. Um, they would send people who ended up in Moscow out. You would not be sent back to the front lines. You'd be sent further east.
0: Mm-hmm. I see, which is kind of what I wanted anyway. By, um, by the fall of 1941, it looked as if uh, Moscow was going to be captured itself, um, which would put further pressure on people to leave. And one of the most fascinating things uh, that you talk about in the book, and this is something I honestly did not know, I knew that there were plans to evacuate the elite in Moscow in October but I did not know there were plans to evacuate the whole city and this uh, apparently had a great impact on people maybe you could talk a little bit about that
1: yeah the story the story of Moscow in October of 1941 is a fascinating one it's um this was as you said by by October of 1941 um, Moscow was, it was quite it started becoming quite clear that Moscow itself was under threat um, evacuations from Moscow had begun um, almost as soon as the invasion itself Moscow was the the capital of the country, it was the pinnacle of power, um, and it was, um, uh, its residents were privileged. So they had been, evacuations had begun already in the summer, um, mainly of children um, uh, with their mothers often, Uh, but in October, as enemy forces approached the city, um, the the government itself started uh, an evacuation plan. of Not simply of women and children, although they, they continue to evacuate them, but of the government um, a, and an uh, accelerated evacuation of the city's factories um, and of much of the population as well. Um, this was this was uh, a, a, a critical moment in the war. Um, the, evacu- the capital was indeed evacuated um, to the Volga city of uh, Samara. Um, Stalin himself was slated for a possible evacuation. In the end, he didn't leave. He he remained in the capital. Um, But once it became clear that a whole host of institutions in the city were being evacuated, again, at an accelerated rate, rumors spread like wildfire through the city that the government was being evacuated, that Stalin had left, um, and very quickly, uh, not surprisingly, panic set in. Um, Tens of thousands of people Unable to procure train tickets, because train tickets at this point, again, in this moment of heightened anxiety, uh, were being distributed um, only through official channels. Um, so those unable to procure train tickets were leaving on um, you know, by foot, um, by car if they had the opportunity. Um, and the whole city ceased to function uh-huh. uh, for a couple of days. Um, the newspaper wasn't issued. The metro didn't run. People showed up at work and... Uh, there was nobody there. Um, uh, the city came to a standstill, um, something that hadn't happened uh, right, um, since Soviet power had really been established in Moscow. Mm-hmm. And um, there were wild rumors going through the city, not simply that Stalin was leaving, but that the Germans had already reached you know, the outskirts of the city. Um, people started burning their party cards, um, convinced that the city would soon be in the hands of the Germans. Um, And I I read a lot of diary accounts, um, memoir accounts, but also diary accounts and letters that were written in this period. Um, And one of the striking things that people noted was that uh, for the first time, uh, again, since the establishment of Soviet power, you could hear people openly cursing uh, Soviet power on the streets. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a sense that uh, this experiment in socialism was in its uh, dying days, that Uh, that the the Soviet Union was indeed on the brink of collapse. Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. I think, though, that the thing that struck me was that it it took a measure as severe as the Germans literally being on the outskirts of Moscow and an evacuation order to begin the process of uh, disintegration. I was thinking, again, this really isn't a fair crack, but um, in order to shut an American city down, all you have to do is turn the lights out. And people start to burn and loot and run rampant and wild in the streets. Yeah. Uh, and and this was much more severe pressure, a yeah. much much more unimaginably more mm-hmm. pressure. And I think mm-hmm. that bespeaks a certain social solidarity that we don't sometimes we don't uh, associate with the Soviet Union. I think yeah. people really they really hung in there for a long time until things uh, went badly.
1: I think that's absolutely true, and that's one of the things that I tried to um, try to kind of draw out in the book is that there really was um, that the war, in some ways, I mean, the war challenged the Soviet Soviet power more seriously than anything had up until that point. I mean, it did seem to be on the brink of collapse, and yet at the same time, it drew uh, it drew many many people together, um, and there was a certain stoicism
2: mm-hmm. um, and, a,
1: and a real sense of duty and obligation. Um, and one of the interesting things about the breakdown in Moscow is you're right absolutely this was a moment of intense pressure pressure that's difficult to kind of uh, to to imagine um but the the most common sentiment expressed um at least in the sources that I had access to uh by Soviet citizens was a sense of uh, about the events of those days was a sense of shame mm-hmm. um that the, the kind of stoic uh endurance the city had displayed until that point broke down.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that speaks to precisely that sense of kind of social solidarity
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh that you're talking about. And in some sense it's interesting. One of the things that I that I also found interesting, this the war of course comes only a few years after the terror, um and it's was not it's not uncommon to find in memoirs of people who were affected by the terror whose family members were arrested, etc. Um, a, uh, a sense that the war uh, the war so people actually put it this way the war r- erased the memory of the terror
2: that
1: mm-hmm. the war other people said the war for the first for the first time in years made them feel russian mm-hmm. um, so it 's not that there was necessarily this sense of solidarity over the previous twenty years, but the war created a new sense of solidarity mm-hmm. because there was a common exterior enemy
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah no it 's interesting i mean. Ordinarily, in situations like this, when there's a lot of pressure of this sort, um, divisions appear in society pretty quickly, and we know that in the American case, they appear remarkably quickly. But <laughs> I, I guess I am, um, I'm just struck about uh, the, the sort of homogeneity of the response. Um, you know, sometimes people make a, a distinction between Jews and non-Jews, or or people from the South and people from the North, and and um, Ukrainians and Belarusians and Russians and so on and so forth. But I, I just don't. I don't see very much of that in your book, that really it was the case that they were all threatened here. Although I should say, um, and let's talk a little bit about this, there was a decision as to whether one should go or leave Moscow in October uh, or not, and there were some interesting rumors floating around about uh, the intentions of the Germans. One of the things I was fascinated to find out is that people were saying, well, the Germans really are only after the communists and the Jews, so we might um, stay safely. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, it's um this is this is an interesting I mean this dilemma to, to stay or to go was something that um every family, every individual had to faced. Um because even if you weren't designated for evacuation, there was always the possibility of, of you know so called spontaneous self evacuation. Um and so it was something that everybody talked about. And it, it really for many people the terms of the, the debate were quite interesting. Um many people uh or some people felt like that they had a responsibility to leave; that it would be absolutely unconscionable to end up in the hands of the German fascists. Uh, so, so, for some people, there was a kind of either a patriotic or a kind of ideological imperative to depart. Um, but for others, uh, and for some people, I should say, there was a patriotic imperative to remain because you had to you had to fight. Um, so the, the, it was it was a complex. Um, a, a complex moment. Um, there were people, and this was this is also very interesting in the in the case of Moscow. It clearly surfaced that people who had never been, uh, I should say, you know, supporters of Soviet power, um, were uh, came out of the woodwork in this period. And there are a number of, of memoirs who commented on the way that this this moment, the moment of decision to stay or to go, really revealed uh, the divisions of the population. That those people who or critical of Soviet power um, saw remaining as their chance, their chance to get out of the hold or to escape the hold of the Soviet state um, and to try their luck in a different kind of political under a different kind of political regime.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They, weren't, uh, they weren't supporters of fascism, or most of them, I haven't seen any cases, but they were certainly anti-Soviet and so this was a chance to, um, to, to escape the Soviet Union.
0: Mm-hmm. At, at, point, at, at what point did people understand that the Germans? And, and I think it's actually quite early. But at what point did people uh, understand or believe that the Germans were there uh, for purposes other than strictly occupation? Let's put it that way.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, this this is a difficult. It's a difficult question. And one of the things um, people had, this, Soviet citizens who were trying to make sense of the situation, it was a complicated situation to make sense of, had a number of sources of information. They had the newspapers, um, the official Soviet newspapers, um, which told them that the Germans were there for more than occupation. Um, very rarely, only rarely did the newspapers single out Jews, however. Mm-hmm. The newspapers did say that they were the Germans were there to, um, you know, to, to, you know, institutions, you know. Uh, To to enslave the population, Mm -hmm. Uh, but they didn't say they were there, uh, that they didn't mention the genocide of Jews, although they did talk about anti-Semitism sometimes. Um, So the newspapers were one source of information. Rumors were in many ways a much more important source, and rumors were fed by the masses of of people who were coming from the front lines and coming with stories of what was actually going on. Um, And this is something that people talked about a lot. What were the Germans really after? The notion that Germans were after only communists and Jews was pervasive. And it was instead, in part by official, by by news, by by things that people actually knew about the the Germans uh, from the pre-war era and from the the early war era. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was in some ways, the Soviets classified that as a defeatist rumor. Mm -hmm. Um, Defeatist because it reassured others that they didn't have anything to worry about, which of course wasn't true. Mm-hmm. um although the germans did not carry out uh you know a um a, a genocide of ukrainians or or uh or russians they were treated extraordinarily badly um there were policies of enforced starvation in areas um so of course these germans weren't true uh but there was very little knowledge there was very, there was very there was i would say there was a failure of imagination um, a completely understandable one: a failure to conceive that occupation could in fact be mm-hmm. uh, as brutal as as it would be, mm-hmm. and there were for, for the older generations, um, there were memories of the first world war. Um, people remembered the German troops and remembered them as civilized um, and were all too willing to attribute what they read in the Soviet newspapers to a propaganda effort. Mm-hmm. Well, there was a skepticism about official sources that also fed this, uh, you know, this, this perspective or this reluctance to believe that the Germans would in fact uh, commit this type of atrocities. And even if you did think that occupation was going to be difficult, you had to weigh that against what would happen were you to simply leave your home. Um, and that was a big unknown. Uh, in the Soviet Union of this era and the Stalin era, to, to leave your home, first of all, if you did it without authorization, you risk cutting yourself um, off from all of the important distribution networks that sustained you, the institutional networks and your patronage networks, all of these networks that sustained you, um, you will risk cutting yourself off from. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, people had very little faith that the state would, in fact, look after them uh, in the rear. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: Yeah. No, I was going to mention that there was kind of a cry wolf moment here because uh, the press was not entirely trustworthy, let's say, during the 20s and 30s. And they uh, made a lot of stuff up. And then when the Germans came, they really didn't have to make anything up anymore because the events on the ground were bad enough that if simply reported, they would scare most people straight. Uh, But they had lost some degree of Although I think so many Soviet citizens had contact with the Germans, especially through the armed forces, that uh, they quickly realized that um, what was in Izvesti and Pravda was not uh, some sort of uh, dark fantasy of the Communist Party. In fact, the Germans were there for very, very nefarious purposes. Um, uh-huh. I, I, I want to take our story uh, past Moscow. So once, let's just take our hypothetical uh, Belarusian citizen again uh, past Moscow, and he gets evacuated uh, or she gets evacuated to the east – and the place that you focus on is Tashkent. Why Tashkent?
1: Uh, for a number of reasons. I think Tashkent, Tashkent in par- for, for a couple of, well, I think, important reasons, Tashkent was one of the most uh, uh, sought-out destinations um, for a wide swath of Soviet citizens, ranging from uh, some of the, the kind of literary and cultural elites, people like poet Anna Akhmatova, um, uh, Alexei Tolstoy, um, all sorts of musicians, um, so it was a sought-out destination among elites, and it was also a, um, a sought-out destination for a large numbers of Jews who were coming mainly from the south, from uh... southern Ukraine and southern Russia. In Tashkent, there had been a novel written, and this is one of those cases where literature—see, um, it's—it's—it's. Uh, in fact, there had been a novel written in the 1920s called Tashkent, City of Bread, <laughs> and it had been translated into Yiddish. And if you'd read the novel, you wouldn't you wouldn't be so eager to go to Tashkent because it really doesn't turn out to be the kind of uh, mecca that the title would suggest. Um, but this novel, everyone had heard of Tashkent City of Bread. Um, if you're if you're weighing Siberia versus Tashkent, well, Tashkent is in the <laughs> south. Um, never mind that when they get there, everybody complained of the climate. I never read a single letter by anyone who did not complain of the climate in Tashkent. Um, but certainly, if you're looking at it from an abstract point of view, here's this place that's supposed to be a city of bread. Um, It's not Siberia. It seems to be in the south. You're going to be warmer. Um, And if you're looking at it in comparison to other non-Russian republics, um, Tashkent had a sizable Russian-speaking population, not yellow-Russian-speaking population, but a sizable Russian population, Ukrainian population. Um, And so there might not be the language difficulties you would encounter. Um, Uh,
0: I I think it's important to say, though, for uh, our listeners who don't know, that um, Tashkent is uh, not in Russia. And it is—it's uh, quite a ways from Russia, and is in fact in Uzbekistan. Um, and, and is an, uh, and Uzbekistan itself was kind of a made-up place.
1: Yes, absolutely. And and well, and the interesting thing—one of this was one of, the, is one of the, the, the things that drew me to Tashkent. I could have Tashkent was not the city that received the most, um, in numerical terms, the most, the greatest number of evacuees. But uh, for me, um, this was an interesting part of the story. People because these people who came from russia from from Russia, from Ukraine, um, found themselves in a city that was very foreign in many ways. Um, it was m- although there were large numbers of Russian speakers there um, who had co- migrated over the years. Um, it was an Uzbek city and and, uh, and, and Tajik city, but it had uh, a, sort of another story. Um, so it was an Uzbek city. Um, the language was foreign. Uh, the architecture was different. Um, until uh you know it had hadn't it had only been that region had only been incorporated into the Russian Empire um uh, rather late in the game in the latter half of the nineteenth century mm-hmm. um and one of the things that uh that that made the city of interest to me was um to see it i think it it helps um get at to what degree partly to what degree was this region really incorporated into the Soviet Union um, many people felt themselves to be refugees um, entering a kind of foreign world but what we see is that even though Tashkent and Uzbekistan in many ways had not been fully Sovietized um, that people who arrived there knew very well how to manage the situation. Soviet institutions were sufficiently entrenched uh, that when writers arrived in the soviet capital for in the Uzbek capital for instance, they knew right away to go to the writers union um and so the the institutional landscape of the cities that was repl- in in tashkent was uh was very similar to the institutional landscape that people had left behind and and so this is uh, i think the um the case of tashkent uh is interesting in that regard because it 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 does make a point about how much uh, the Soviet Union had had uh, kind of, um, created a kind of uh, a, a uniform mm-hmm. uh, institutional world. It was also interesting because it highlighted this question that you raised earlier about social solidarity. Um, here was a place that uh, in which you had people of a huge number of different ethnic groups living together during the war. Um, Tashkent was celebrated in many ways. As a, a kind of symbol of the friendship of nations, and this was the, the friendship of peoples, the friendship of nations was a kind of concept that had been developed over the previous decade. Um, but it was it was touted during the war because in the during in the war on the front lines, you had Uzbeks fighting alongside Ukrainians, fighting alongside Russians, um, etc. And the the Tashkent capital, which welcomed so many um, Russians and Ukrainians and Jews, um, along with Belarusians and Latvians, etc., was seen as a kind of a model of this friendship. Um, and so one of the things that was, and, and one of the things that became a real symbol of this was, were the international adoptions, or I shouldn't say inter-ethnic adoptions, I should mm-hmm. say, um, in Uzbekistan. There were these famous cases that were reported all over the Soviet Union of these Uzbek families who adopted you know, 15, 16 children, mm-hmm. each of a different ethnicity, um, and, and made them their own.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I was interested in Tashkent. Um, in part, again, because it attracted such a diverse group of people and in part because it was also a way to examine both the myth and the reality of the friendship of nations.
0: Mm-hmm. Just a couple, a couple of background questions. How, how big was uh, Tashkent before the
1: in-migration? Um, it's the population um, had grown quite a bit over the previous decade. It was the, the number of people who came, I think it was, I think. I think, uh I think it was about five hundred thousand or six hundred six hundred thousand. There'd been an administrative reorganization shortly before the war.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I think it was about six thousand.
0: Mm-hmm. And then um during the how many people came into Tashkent to live?
1: Well th- this is a pretty difficult question yeah. and I, I spent a lot of time trying to um, piece together various statistics. Um because of some of the problems that we talked about earlier, the way that people could simply slip through um, the kind of official channels, um, counting during the war was was incredibly difficult. Official estimates um, put the number of evacuees in Tashkent at 100,000. Um, I think there were certainly uh, there were certainly more.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the
1: Tashkent station was one of you know was, was a uh, station that. Uh, I won't say, but hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people went through. Um, Tashkent was one of those cities, like Moscow, that was very hard to gain access to. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
1: it was supposed to be reserved for um, people who had been designated for evacuation. This was mm-hmm. a place that was off-limits off, off limits for the spontaneous self-evacuees. Um, and there were a whole set of regulations trying to restrict access to the city. But, of course, uh, we have lot, plenty of stories of people who were able to... Um, make their way into Tashkent and mm-hmm. live there at least for some time before being evicted um, or before leaving because of the hardship.
0: Mm-hmm. We should also say that these people, by and large, did not come as individuals. Uh, Soviet society was uh, corporatist, I guess I would call it. Everybody belonged to something that usually got them. Uh, I can even remember being, um, when I was in the Soviet Union the first or second time, I don't know, but I remember getting eggs from the people at the archive I don't know why they got a distribution of eggs, but that's how we got eggs. They got the <laughs> egg shipment at the archive and so we got right. some eggs. Yeah. Uh, but so people came actually as members of their unions or members of their collectives. Is that correct? And these things called echelons. They use this odd word echelon.
1: Yes. Um no this is this is right and and this is for for me this was one of the interesting aspects of the story that I think the way the evacuation was organized really does um have led on the way Soviet society functioned. The people, uh, those who were, who were evacuated in what they called organized fashion, i.e., not the people who fled, um, were evacuated in this kind of corporate fashion with their workplace. Um, and those are the people who were most well looked after. So if you were a writer and you were evacuated with the writers' union, um, the head of the writers' union sent tele, you know, telegrams onto the stations you passed through to make sure that you were provided with food along with the route. Of course, writers were, were privileged, uh, but these organizations would ensure that you had somewhere to live when you arrived, um, that you were linked up to a cafeteria so that you would have food uh, because salaries simply weren't enough to live on. And you, you hear that repeated by people and every source you can imagine. Um, so you needed to be linked up to some kind of official distribution network. And this is one of the the reasons people were hesitant to leave on their own. Leaving on their own meant abandoning those kind of networks um, that were so crucial to survival. So Tashkent officially was only to be um, accessible to those arriving in kind of organized fashion who had been designated uh, to to uh, arrive in the city. Um, but it's, it's very clear that uh, for many people, if their factory or their workplace was not being evacuated, they were very reticent, again, to leave the security of these networks, knowing that in a new place they would have to um, have to, you know, be able to kind of get into some kind of institutional distribution network because workplace was who you worked for, your kind of, uh, was key not only to your salary but also to access to cafeterias, access to housing. So housing was organized along these lines as well, mm-hmm. um, and that's key to survival. Mm-hmm.
0: It seems as if the entire situation was structured in such a way to encourage, um, I was going to say, a criminal activity, but perhaps uh misdemeanors is a better uh, word <laughs> for it that that people were going to be uh, working on the edges of propriety in order to survive. Do we have a lot of evidence of that?
1: Uh, we have ample evidence of that uh, both from memoirs and from the perennial you know party reports that complain about um excuse me, insta- instances of um, of yeah, misdemeanors. Um, bribery uh, was a big problem. Uh, another problem that everybody complained about um, in Tashkent was what it was called black, uh, which is this kind of system of favors. So people complained that you couldn't get housing unless you, you knew people. Um, you couldn't get work unless you knew people. Uh, we have evidence of um, factories employing, you know, and I say employing in quotation marks, employing people who had absolutely nothing to do um, with these factories, or and none of their training uh, had any relevance to what the factory did. Um, and clearly, it was a case that somehow either the person knew the factory director or they bribed them, and uh, the factory agreed to inscribe them on the names of their employees to get them housing, to get them access to cafeterias, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so the police in there uh, would and would uncover cases like this.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I knew of cases like that in the 80s in the Soviet Union of people that Absolutely. were, were um, assigned to work at various places, and I got to know them, and they never went. And I sort of asked <laughs> them about this, like, "Why don't you have to go to work?" And no, I don't, I don't have to go to work. I said, "Don't you work here?" I work there. Yes. Like, <laughs> I don't I understand that. But anyway, go ahead.
1: Right. No. Well, it's true. This This was. And this. This had begun. begun well before the war. So this was kind of the importance of these relations. Um, but it was, it made, it made displacement particularly precarious. I mean, displacement in any condition, in any circumstance is, um, is perceived by people usually as a, as a calamity and it's difficult, um, and precarious, puts you in a precarious position. But in the Soviet Union, when knowing people and having these kind of institutional connections, uh, was so important to survival, displacement raised, uh, particular perils.
0: Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and what did what did the Soviet authorities do with displaced persons? What, what did they do with people that had fallen through the cracks and were not affiliated with any um, organization or institution, that were basically homeless? What, were, right. what, what did they do with those populations?
1: Well, they, they expelled them from the major cities. Um, so the cities, again, were... Are uh, conceived of as place uh, privileged places. Um, so people in Tashkent would get rounded up and sent to the countryside, which uh, many people felt was a was a death sentence. Um, in the countryside, especially in a place like Uzbekistan, there were communication problems. Um, so there were lots of problems reported of um, uh, you know displaced people having trouble communicating with the, their Uzbek hosts. Um, collectivization had not been going to the countryside, and certainly uh, the, there were food shortages in the countryside as well. Some people wanted to be in the countryside. thought they'd be closer to the, the source of food. Um, but uh, And it was exceedingly difficult to find work.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did, did people starve to death?
1: Um, yes, they did. Mm-hmm. They did. And I, do we, we have
0: any figures on that at all?
1: Um, it's very difficult to know um, the numbers. The, the number of deaths um, spiked dramatically. Just the number of of people dying in Tashkent, like and dramatically, I and mean, even if you offset that by the increase in population, of course there was a decrease in the sense of so many people were been mobilized for the front. Um, but it, so even if you kind of control for that, um, there's a sharp increase in the number of deaths in 1942. 1942 is the most difficult year mm-hmm. of the war, mm-hmm. and often you know people starve to death, but they die often of other you know diseases, that they become vulnerable to typhus, for instance. Um, but it was not uncommon to see. Dead bodies um, mm-hmm. around the train station mm-hmm. in the memoir literature and diaries you hear um, death is, is is omnipresent people are they see bodies that have not been cleared off the streets. Um, I found you know uh, discussions about the, the lack of space in the local cemeteries, especially the Jewish cemetery they had to really expand um, because there simply weren 't enough spots to um, to bury people
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to um, talk a little bit about uh, the, uh, the, the symbolic nature of the evacuation and how it particularly, if I understood what you said correctly, affected uh, I guess what I'd call Soviet folk attitudes toward Jews. My understanding had always been that um, anti-Semitism was waning in Russia uh, before the war. Um, and I also know uh, for a fact that anti-Semitism was, I think what they called a violation of party discipline. It was strongly discouraged, uh, and people could be um, sanctioned severely for it. But something happens during the evacuation, it becomes associated with Jews, and then a kind of return to what I sometimes call civil anti-Semitism appears. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I think this is one of the really interesting phenomena of the war. On the one hand, Clearly, the evacuation saved countless numbers of Jews from from basically certain deaths in occupied territory. At the same time, it really did give rise to a new wave of anti-Semitism. And I think what you what you said a moment ago is true that anti-Semitism had been um, on the decline before the war. Uh, and and you know anecdotally, in the the sources that I looked at, um, I I came across numerous people who commented uh, that they were surprised that they hadn't encountered these kind of attitudes in the Soviet Union before. So anecdotal evidence that suggests that this indeed is a new phenomenon uh, with the evacuation. The the evacuation, as I said, the Soviet authorities did not actually um, uh, target Jews for evacuation. Although they knew quite early on that Jews were in fact in greater danger um, than other Soviet citizens of uh, being killed by the occupation forces, they never targeted Jews as Jews for evacuation. Um, but there was, Jews did flee in greater numbers, um, in no small measure because of the rumors um, and, and the knowledge of German antisemitism and the rumors about what might await them should they fall into uh, occupied territory. Um, Jews were also evacuated in greater numbers because um, they had come to occupy disproportionate, um, you know, disproportionate proportion of parties, the, the groups that were subject to evacuation. Um, happened to have disproportionately large numbers of, members of mm-hmm. Jews, party members, writers, uh, the cultural elite, um, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a common perception uh, that Jews were fleeing. And this was in part uh, a function of a real situation that was created by the nature of, of the German invasion. Um, and of course it was uh, also wildly exaggerated. There were people who thought that you know, all of Moscow was Jewish and had fled, and um, so there was there was wild exaggeration. But this perception that Jews took flight, um, I think, was was crucial in sparking a new wave of anti-Semitism. And Tashkent became a kind of symbol of that. Um, there was a common joke that originated in the war and then became very popular after the war. Um, that you know the Jew over there served on the Tashkent front. (laughs) He bought his medals in Tashkent. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this was, of course, you know, one of the places that was furthest from the actual front lines. Uh Um, And because, uh, and so there there was this kind of perception that Jews had fled from service.
2: Uh Uh Uh,
1: And although Jews had, in fact, left in disproportionate numbers, they were also very well represented in the army, so that Mm -hmm. wasn't borne out. Um, But... Those stories were not publicized by the Soviet mm-hmm. state. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: yeah, how did they, how did the party react to these rumors? Because it seemed to me they would also be sort of defeatist and counter revolutionary. Did they uh, take any affirmative steps to uh, to
1: fight them? Well, they they did. It, well, it's interesting. I when I was working in the Moscow party archives. Um, you mentioned earlier that anti-semitism was something that you could be severely reprimanded for and i did still find cases of people you know, somebody on a bus making an anti-semitic remark in early you know in the month following the invasion um... suffering consequences for it um, and in some cases party members actively tried to undermine um, these notions in part because uh, it made people complacent or at least that was the perception that if the nazis were only targeting jews so jews were the ones who were fleeing then um, clearly nobody else had anything to worry about. So why you know, why, why fuss about the, the war effort? Um, but one of the things that certainly on a, at least a kind of anecdotal level um, and the sources that I had access to and, and read is that the efforts to combat this kind of anti-Semitism um, became much less pronounced over the course of the war.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and people were often surprised to hear party members making remarks of this nature.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: because they expected party members to be the ones who would uh, discount this kind of mm-hmm. uh, this kind of claim about Jews being cowards and not fulfilling their service.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but um, the state, I think, in part, the the Jewish question just became very um, uh, state central state authorities became very uh, concerned mm-hmm. about associating the war with Jews.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Mm-hmm. And um, and they basically stayed off the topic, mm-hmm. um, and it also opened up a space I think for popular anti-Semitism to, um to grow. And of course, in evacuation, since many of many evacuees were perceived as Jews, there were many Jews, and so that further fed the flames of anti-Semitism mm-hmm. because there were um, invariably conflicts over scarce resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the return of evacuees at the end of the war. Um, this this also, especially in in the formerly occupied territories, uh, which had also been subjected to, you know, had had lived through it a couple of years at least of Nazi propaganda. Um, When Jews returned, there were real conflicts, which Mm -hmm. further uh, fed the flames of Mm anti-Semitism.
0: Yeah, this is something that was always a mystery to me. I was wondering if we could make a connection between uh, this sort of upswelling of I guess I'd call it ground roots uh, anti-Semitism and the uh, more or less official anti-Semitism that begins almost immediately after the war. Um, that is the campaign against, uh, root, I guess they were called rootless cosmopolitans, if I recall correctly, during the, um, what was it called, the Zdana of Shina. Is there any, can we draw any arrows there, or anything like that?
1: I, I think absolutely. I think there's a, there's a real connection here, and it's an interesting moment to see the kind of connection between the kind of official Policy and popular, uh, popular attitudes. Um, you know, the official anti-Semitism you see already starting to uh, bear its face in the in the very early years of the war, already in 42-43. Um, even in, in Tashkent, which is far from Moscow, uh, people start uh, becoming aware of a new central policy. In the film industry, people start getting dismissed. It just so happens that those people are people with Jewish last names. Mm-hmm. Um, uh so people that the official policy starts changing early and I think it does have a, a, a significant impact on um popular attitudes. Uh when people start returning to the places they had left um, at the end of the war, uh, there's a popular perception that Jews weren't allowed to return. Mm-hmm. This is not the case. I've not found a single document that says, you know, Jews were not, you know, that, that directs authorities to forbid Jews from returning. And Jews do in fact return in, in large numbers. Um, But because of this official policy of divesting Jews of their position in various kind of cultural and political um, institutions, um, that creates a kind of um, expectation or perception among the population at large um, that Jews are no longer welcome Mm
2: -hmm. in
1: liberated Ukraine, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's a kind of feedback mechanism, and it gives gives greater license, I think, to the population and also – um, to 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 attempt to actually bar Jews from returning, mm-hmm. um, and um, and makes uh, certainly gives the impression that it's now okay to be anti-Semitic.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I think I was going to say I think I see your next book. to <laughs> 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 talk a little bit about in the pre-interview, but I certainly would like to hear about the wartime origins of the Judenauktion and the. Uh, Campaign Against Rootless (laughs) Cosmopolitan, because I never understood it, not for a second, until reading the book. (laughs) I should say also we've taken up a lot of your time, Rebecca. We've been talking to Rebecca Manley about uh, her new book, "To The Tashkent Station, Evacuation and Survival in the uh, Soviet Union at War. Um, And and I want to thank you for being on the show. Uh, I want to conclude, though, with our our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, uh, aside from um, my suggestion, which you can (laughs) throw in the trash – uh, what what is your next project? What are you going to work on now, other than raising uh, children?
1: <laughs> <laughs> one one of the things that I've thought about um, that I became quite interested in when I started work on this project and through my work on the project was um, the way the war, not simply the evacuation, but the war more generally, was uh, remembered in the Soviet Union mm-hmm. um, and possibly in the post Soviet era. Uh, one of the things that really struck me. When I was working on the project, although all of my studies about the Soviet Union had always focused on the 1930s, um, if you talk to the older generations, when I first started going to Russia um, in the early 1990s, if you talk to them and started asking them questions about their past, they were much more interested in talking about the war Mm -hmm. um, than they were most other periods. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was interested in what kind of meaning the war had. had for this uh, this older generation mm-hmm. um, as I said, the war in some ways was uh, a a moment of although it was a moment of greatest suffering in many ways certainly numerically the number of Soviet citizens who died during the war is just uh, you know it's is, is, is difficult to fathom um it's so large um so it was a moment of it was it was in many ways you know Certainly the 1930s were no weren't easy with collectivization and uh, the terror et cetera uh, but this was a moment of intense suffering, but it's also a moment that Soviet citizens um, seem to identify with mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and some people even refer to it as, you know, as the best time of their lives. this was a time uh, when people when there was a sense of social solidarity um,
0: I guess I would say there was a in hindsight, it looks that way because, you know, one of the things I've been doing recently, uh, this is simply an aside, is I've been uh, looking at an um, association with an entirely different project. I've been looking at uh, sort of uh, newspaper debates in the United States during World War II. And we have this notion here that it was the greatest generation and everything was hunky-dory and we went and defeated the Germans and the Japanese and, and everybody went back to their white picket fence. It, it wasn't like that at all. I mean, it, people were, uh, you know, you know, like for example, just to institute the draft was like pulling teeth in the United States. To lower the draft age to 18 in the United States was like pulling teeth. People didn't want to do this. They they weren't convinced that they needed to go fight in Europe. Uh, it was it really was not. Um, Let's go and defeat the fascists. It just wasn't like that. Even though now, thanks to Tim, Tom Brokaw, a fine person, uh, we have this notion that this was the greatest generation and they just marched off to war. So I imagine what you'd find is that uh, people's recollection of this thing is very different than what actually happened. And that makes you perfectly suited to write the book because you know what happened. <laughs> well, Rebecca, I want to I say thanks very much again for being on the show. Let me repeat the title of the book again so that you can um, buy your children new shoes. The, to the Toskent Station, Evacuation and Survival in the Soviet Union at War. It's just come out from um, Cornell University Press. I should also put a plug in for Cornell. They have, uh, I think, the, the best Russian history list uh, in the United States and probably the world. So it's a terrific publisher to, to publish with. Um, and I want to congratulate them for publishing the book. Rebecca, thanks for being on the show.
1: Thank you for having me here. Okay,
0: okay, take care. Bye bye. Bye
1: bye. You've
0: been listening to an interview with Rebecca Manley about her new book, The Tashkent Station Evacuation and Survival in the Soviet Union at War. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. Okay.